Well, open your Bibles to the book of the Revelation of Jesus to John, Revelation chapter 1. Taking a break from our study of the book of Romans on this Easter Sunday to focus intently on the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I want to tell you as a preacher who deals with the text of the Word of God all the time that there is no shortage of verses to go to when you want to talk about, think about, and understand better the resurrection of Jesus. Certainly there are the four accounts in the Gospels, but there's also ongoing explanation and defense of the resurrection in the book of Acts. In fact, Paul is put on trial at least five times that we know of, maybe more that we don't have recorded, for believing and teaching the resurrection. But if Jesus was dead, then what we're about to read in Revelation 1 would make no sense. Let me read this chapter for you, and then we're going to isolate our attention just on a few verses. And let me, let me give you a little fair warning this morning. We're going to read a lot of Scripture today, and, and I don't think we can do anything better than to just let God speak to us and bathe us with His truth. Revelation chapter 1, just follow along as I read The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. And the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me 
a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like wool, like, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice, his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword in his face. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are seven churches. You would be hard-pressed to find anyone, at least in our country, who didn't have some familiarity with Jesus of Nazareth, with Jesus the Christ. He's the most famous person to ever live. But this general familiarity with Jesus in no way guarantees an accurate understanding of Jesus. There are lots of ideas about Jesus. Lots of pictures in, about Jesus. Some even visual pictures of a light-haired, blue-eyed man, which would not have been the case of a Jew of that time. But beyond the pictorial references, the mental ideas about Jesus are pervasive and plethora. There are so many understandings and ideas about Jesus that are undefined and ill-defined by what people remember or know of the Bible that you could almost find any Jesus of your own concoction Conversation to conversation with most people you know. Now, this is nothing new. In the first generation after Jesus' death, the Apostle Paul was writing a letter to, wrote a letter to 
his friends and believers in the city of Corinth. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he said, I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Then he says this, For if one comes to you and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached. What he's saying is people may come to you and try to tell you things about Jesus that are not true. They'll try to redefine Jesus apart from what the Bible says Jesus is like and what the Bible says Jesus did. I think Paul recognized what we see and that is that many, some, a lot, would distort who Jesus is and the work that he accomplished on the cross, misrepresent who he is and what he did, even change and augment and diminish the story of the Lord Jesus. But what makes me most fearful and terrified for our church body and even for my own heart is that I would have and ponder and resonate on and marinate on and think through false notions about the Lord. Without Scripture to come and correct our thinkings of, thinking about Christ, we will all invent a Jesus of our own liking. Now, to make sure we have the right view of Jesus, I want us to revisit a few scenes from the Bible, especially on this weekend, Resurrection Weekend. The first is in Matthew's gospel. I want you to turn back to the book of Matthew. We'll find ourselves in Revelation in just a moment. Matthew's view of the resurrection is, is remarkable from the standpoint of he's talking to Jews, telling them that this is the king of kings, the Messiah, and the Messiah was never expected to die, and the Messiah was never expected to die for sins, and the Messiah was never expected to rise from the grave. And yet, in Matthew 27, we see just that. Now, let me just read this in context for you. You, you know this passage, you know this story, but listen to it with fresh ears, okay? Matthew 27, verse 57. After Jesus was executed on the cross, which we've been thinking through and remembering all week, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, laid it on in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock, and he rolled away, rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now, on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. This is interesting. And they said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive... That deceiver said, after three days, I am going to rise again. As we heard from Matthew, the disciples didn't remember that, but the enemies did. Isn't that interesting? Therefore, give orders that the grave be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, See, he has risen from the dead. 
And the last deception will be worse than the first. So, you can fill in the blanks. Afraid of a conspiracy, Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. They went and made the grave secure along with the guard. They set a seal on the stone. Now, after the Sabbath, this would have been Saturday, after the Saturday, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a great severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone. I love this. And sat upon it. I just see this angel kicking back, sitting on the stone with an empty tomb. Verse 3, and his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. Luke says it was dazzling, it was bright. The guards shook for fear of him and they became like dead men. The angel said to the women, not to the guards, to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here. For he has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I've told you. They left the tomb with, quickly with fear and great joy and ran and report, to report it to the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them. And greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Now, there's this refrain, we'll see it in Revelation Do not be afraid. Don't be, do not be afraid. <laughs> Why would you be afraid? If you saw someone who is dead and they're not dead anymore, you would probably be afraid. Go take my word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, 100 miles north. There they will see me. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city, reported to the chief priests all that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money. They bribed them to the soldiers and said, You are to say, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. They took the money and they did as had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Jesus was crucified, buried, in a tomb, a stone put in front of it, sealed by Roman authority. Angel came, rolled the stone away. Jesus left, and the angel sat around waiting for a reception with these two Marys. Flip over now to Acts chapter 
one. Skipping over quite a bit, he does meet them, and then he meets them in Galilee up north, about 100 miles. Now it becomes time for Jesus to leave them and to go to heaven. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, the first account, I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive the power, receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall see, shall be my witnesses, both here in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. After he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, being lifted up, behold, two men in white clothing, these angels must have a great wardrobe, stood beside them. I just, now picture this. They're looking at Jesus who is literally floating up and disappearing into the clouds. They're looking up and these two guys show up, angels, while they're looking up. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. The next time that we see the Lord Jesus... It's in Revelation chapter 1. But something was different. Something had happened. Something changed between this encounter and Revelation 1. Visibly, something had changed. Reverently, something had changed. A little background. In John chapter 17, you can find your way to Revelation 1. Let me just give you a little background as you're getting there. John chapter 17, Jesus was praying, and he said in chapter 17, verse 4, I have glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, listen, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. We've said over and over, no one prays like that. Have you ever been in a prayer meeting and heard someone say, pray, Lord, I want to... I just want to remember the good old days before there was an earth or a universe or a solar system. And remember when we used to fellowship together in eternity past forever. Remember those days? I want to go back to that. 
This is the only man who has ever prayed that. Well, the prayer for the Father to glorify the Son happened between that ascension and Revelation 1. By the way, not long before that prayer that Jesus uttered, the Apostle John, who by all accounts was the best friend of Jesus while he was on the earth, the disciple whom Jesus loved, at the Last Supper was so close to him that in camaraderie and affection actually laid his head on his chest. And that same John is about to have a much different encounter with the one who is crucified and now is alive and about to speak to him. Full background to Revelation chapter 1. The book begins with John, who is the last living apostle, living in exile on the small island of Patmos, which was out in the Aegean Sea. Verse 9 tells us, He had been banished there because of his faithful preaching of the gospel. So instead of executing him, which they did the other apostles, they banished him out to this island, this this, uh, uh, remote island with nothing on it except suffering. He's an old man by now. And God gave him a vision of Jesus, from Jesus, that outlined future history, the end of the world, what would come, the kingdom of God, and the judge who is the Lord Jesus. Gave him this vision called the Revelation. He'd been arrested in Ephesus, if you'll remember, and continued to have a pastoral passion for those churches in that area, Asia Minor, who he's writing to in this first um, chapter, the seven churches that were in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And one pervasive message leaks out of every verse in the book of Revelation. Jesus was not only alive, but Jesus was to come, is to come in glory and judge the world, the living and the dead. So, the book was written to provide believers with hope. God is sovereign, in sovereign control over evil men, evil kingdoms, evil ways, disasters. He is still in sovereign control. And even though evil men reign and bad things continue to happen, Jesus is coming and will make it all right one day for those who love him. Now, with all that, we are going to hit hyperdrive. And I want to give you... A quick glimpse at Jesus. Three snapshots of the resurrected Jesus. If you're like me, you'd want to know, okay, once Jesus gets glorified, once the Father answers that question, satisfies that prayer request in John 17 to restore with Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God who became flesh, the glory that he had before the world began. What is that like? What does that look like? Well, we find out in Revelation chapter 1. Now, lots of numbers here. Lots of numbers. Just stick with me because it's intended to be a lot of numbers and staccato fast. The first snapshot of the resurrected Jesus we see are 10 visual features of the resurrected Jesus. 10 features of his physical presence that that John takes the time to, to write out 
Jesus had told him, take notes. Ten visual features. Let's look at them very quickly. First of all, the setting, verse 12. The setting. John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. Remember, he begins speaking uh, to, to him and tells him he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the one who was, uh, was and who is and who is to come. Beginning in verse 8. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the middle of the lampstands. So this is in the middle of the lampstands, he sees something and it was amidst these lampstands. These were, would have been uh, poles with little oil uh, burning lamps at the top with a, probably a saucer. John was worshiping, we find out, on the Lord's Day. And if you do all the, the tracing through the, the book of Acts, the Lord's Day was the first day of week. The first day was a Sunday. Here's a question. Why do we worship on Sunday, which is the first day of the week, rather than Saturday, which is the seventh day of week that the Jews were told to worship on? Why do we do that? Because the early church, even in the example of John, believed that the resurrection is a greater work than the creation. That's an impressive insight that they left for us. He's worshiping on this Sunday. No church, by the way, there would not have been a church on Patmos that we know of, probably by himself, maybe in a cave. On Patmos, there's lots of caves that would provide shelter. I'm sure they didn't give him a chalet out there. And he hears a voice. He's taken up in a vision. Verse 20 tells us that these golden lampstands that he sees are a representation of the seven churches that he was to send this book to. Just a representation of the seven churches. Verse 13, he tells us what he's about to describe that happened in the middle of these seven lampstands. So I'm looking, and something's happening in the middle. This voice is coming from the middle of these seven lampstands. Greg Beale says this, Part of Christ's priestly role is to tend to the lampstands. That's what a priest did in the, in the temple. The Old Testament priest would trim the lamps, remove the wick and the old oil, refill the lamps with fresh oil, relight those that had gone out. Likewise, Christ tends to his ecclesiastical churches, lampstands, by commending, correcting, exhorting, warning, in order to secure the church's fitness for service as light bearers to the dark world. I couldn't say it any better than that. Jesus' presence then with these churches means that he always knows the spiritual condition which results either in blessing or judgment. And you see that in the letters that he writes to these seven churches in the following two chapters. That's a setting. Form. What else does he see? He sees a form. I saw one like. Stop right there. When you read the book of Revelation, you will constantly be engaged with the word like or, or as. It's full of similes. And the reason is there wasn't adequate human language to describe exactly what he saw which is, by the way, a reflection of exactly what happened in Daniel chapter 7 
when someone like a son of man was seen there as well. The references to Daniel through here are just too many to even um, uh, stop and, and mark. We'll, we'll do that at another time. It's a direct reference to the vision of God in that book of Daniel, the Son of Man. By the way, the Son of Man is the description of Jesus that speaks of his humanity. And you might be interested to know that Jesus speaks of himself as the, calls himself the Son of Man more than he talks about any other title in reference to who he is. 81 times he calls himself the Son of Man in the Gospels. I saw one like the Son of Man. You know what that's saying? It was like a man, but not like any man I've ever seen. What do you mean, John? He keeps telling us. Look at his clothing, second, uh, thirdly. He was clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. In the ancient Near East, a sash was only something that a king would wear. This wasn't just any sash. This was made of gold. Indicating what he wore were the, was the clothing of a king. Next is hair. His head and his hair were white like wool, like, like, like snow. This is just like the ancient of days in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. His head and his hair were white. Now, this is not talking about necessarily gray hair. I'm becoming more and more familiar with that week in and week out. What he's talking about is purity. White was a sign and a signal of something very pure, sinless. Notice not just his hair, but also his head. If I was explaining this to the, the fourth graders, I'd say he was glowing. He was brilliant. Next, we come to his eyes. And his eyes, verse 14, were like a flame of fire. The best analogy that I think we could come up with when it talks about a flame of fire it's looking into the hottest part of the fire is, is a welder's torch. There's a reason that welders wear those masks because the intensity of the brightness of the fire would burn their retinas. That's what John is seeing. Looking in his eyes, I remember talking to um, uh, an instructor back when I was taking an intro to psychology back long, a long time ago, my first year of, of college. And a psychologist was talking to me and a group of us, and we were, we were talking about interpersonal relationships. And this gal had us do an experiment. She said, I want you to sit in groups and look at each other in the eyes as long as you can. You can blink, but just keep staring at each other's eyes. It was awkward and uncomfortable. Why? When you look into someone's eyes, you're looking at them. Proverbs says the eyes are the lamp to the soul. When John saw Jesus' eyes, it was like looking at a welder's torch. Pure. 
His gaze made John feel undone. His feet, next. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. This is authority. You stand in authority. Firm footing, unmovable, untouchable. Next, his voice. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. John describes what it's like to stand at the bottom of a waterfall where all you can hear is the power of the water. Several years ago, I was with a group of collegians and we were doing some hiking in Yosemite and went on our way up Half Dome and stopped at Vernal Falls. In the spring, when the snow's melting, the amount of water coming at the bottom of that is thunderous. I remember standing at the bottom before we hiked up the, the rock stairs that went around them, trying to have a conversation with the group, and it was, it was impossible. The point is, when there's the sound of loud water, you can hear nothing else. That's what John describes here. It was the sound of many waters, lots of waters, big Niagara Falls waters. Next, we come to his hands. In his right hand, he held seven stars. This is the church again. I love this imagery. He holds the church and the care of the church in his hand. In the midst, if you were to read this whole book from cover to cover, Revelation 1 to the end, you would know that the fact that Jesus holds the church is something dear and precious because literally all hell that he is going to unleash is about to break loose in his justice and judgment in the coming chapters. And yet he holds the church safe. That's important because of what comes next. A weapon. He has a weapon. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. I don't know what this would have looked like. It's a vision John is having, and this was the best he could describe it. A two-edged sword. Now, we've talked about this before. There are many kinds of swords in the ancient Near East. There were one-sided swords, which like a machete that you used in a, on a farm. Two-edged swords were only used for one thing, battle and lethal force. It was a weapon. Speaks of his judgment. One day he will come. Later, John will tell us with his robe dipped in blood. And that makes the safety and security of the church all the more precious. He's Lord. He's judge. John will tell us he's coming back to this world to judge those who have rejected the free gift of salvation that he died to offer. And then lastly, his face. Verse 16, and his face was like, I love the word like, there's no word. It was like the sun, but that's not enough. The sun shining in his strength, in noon at full force with no clouds in the sky. And all of us know, unfortunately, what it's like to look, even if ever so briefly, at the sun, right? Not a smart thing to do. John says, 
when I saw his face, it was like looking at the sun. What John saw and what John heard and what John realized moved him to respond. Which brings us to number two, the second snapshot of the resurrected Christ. One worshipful response to the resurrected Jesus. What was his response? Verse 17. Remember, he says, I heard the voice, and now I turned my head to look at what I heard, and once he saw, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. That's different than leaning on his chest in camaraderie and affection, isn't it? He's seeing Jesus glorified now. And his response is not, hey, buddy, the man upstairs. His response is to fall down as a dead man because he saw the purity of the Lord Jesus and recognized his own wretched sinfulness. We know this because this happens when there were other manifestations of God where people saw him. Genesis 17:3. Abram fell on his face. And God talked with him, saying, Number 16:22, the people fell on their faces and said, Oh God, God of the spirits of all flesh. Ezekiel 1:28, as the appearance of the rainbow and the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, Ezekiel says, I fell on my face. And then you know the most famous of Isaiah 6, right? In the year of Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. The train of his robe was filling the temple. And by the way, John 12, Jesus says what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6 was him. Seraphim stood above Jesus, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet. With two he flew. One called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the thresholds in the temple. Trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me. I am undone. I'm ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew with me over to me and with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs and touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who will I send and who will go for us? And he said, Here I am. Send me. One more, Acts chapter 9. He fell on his face to the ground. Paul did. Saul fell on, a, on his face to the ground when he heard the voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The response to the resurrected Christ 
is overwhelming worship. To encounter the resurrected Lord is to be overwhelmed. Anything less is a wrong response to the righteous Lord. And the last snapshot is six astonishing statements by the resurrected Jesus. These almost don't need comment. They're incredible. He says six things to John. First, he says, don't be afraid. He placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. Why was John afraid? If you had seen what John had seen, you would be afraid too. Not only had had he seen the resurrected Jesus, he now was seeing the glorified Jesus. And grace, in such grace, almost unbelievable. The judge of the world who should frighten us all to the point of paralysis reaches down, touches John and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why? Next, I am the first and the last. I am the first and the last. We've already seen twice in the book of Revelation he was, he is, he is to come. We also see in verse 8 that he's the alpha and the omega, the A and the Z, the beginning and the end, eternal. I'm the first, I am the last. Revelation 22, 13, you find out that the first and last is a description, by the way, of God himself. A claim to deity. And then thirdly, he says, and I'm the living one. If John hasn't gotten the picture yet, Jesus tells him, In case you were wondering, when I left and went into the clouds, the last time you saw me and you wondered if I had just ceased to exist or maybe died, I'm the living one. Why is this so important? The next statement. And I was dead. I know it's not funny, but can't you just smile at that? I'm the living one. I was dead. This simple statement is the one that you have to hear from someone who could never say that and be like this. It's an affirmation that the crucifixion worked. Listen, the Romans did a good job of killing Jesus. He was dead. And now, next, he's alive. I am alive. I am alive forevermore. I love this forevermore. You know, Jesus was not the first to be raised from the dead, right? Can you think of someone else that Jesus raised from the dead? Lazarus. Poor Lazarus had to die twice. I mean, can you imagine Lazarus on his deathbed? Here we go again. Jesus says, I am alive 
forevermore. I will never die again. He has risen. He has risen indeed. Acts 2.24, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it, death, was impossible for him to be held by its power. His last statement, and I have the keys of eternity. I literally have the keys of death and of Hades. Those are synonyms for the same thing. I own death because I bought death by my resurrection. Jesus decides who lives and how long. Jesus who decides who dies, when and how. Boy, there's good news for all of us this morning who would hear this. He has the power of death. He has the keys to unlock death and let people be alive in eternity with him forever. He has the keys to unlock our death. I mean, the question is this. Do you believe, have you given your faith to the one who has the keys of death and Hades, the abode of the dead? Do you know the Savior? Were we to read, stretching out the next 20 plus chapters, this Jesus, this glorified Jesus, says, I'm coming to the world again. And I'm coming as the judge and will send those who believe in me with all the others who believe in me to heaven. And I will banish those who have rejected my offer of salvation into a Christless eternal hell. The word gospel means good news. And the good news is that we don't have to suffer that because he's conquered the grave. If Jesus is alive, and Christians know he is, if Jesus is alive, that fact changes everything. Do you know him? Will you know him? not just Easter Sunday where the preacher makes you feel bad and walk the aisle and pray a prayer. I, no, just stop. Do you know the resurrected Savior who alone can pay for your sins and provide you eternal life in heaven forever? And if we reject his free offer, there's no appeal and no second chance. We say it often around here, what kind of fool would say no to forgiveness of sins and life with Christ in eternity? Don't be that fool. If you have questions about that, there are people all around you. I'll be up here. I'd love to talk to you about that. Easter lunch is not as important as your eternal soul. Please, I want to beg you. If I could get on my knees and beg you, I would. Please, Don't leave this room without knowing, 
whether you are going to one day meet Jesus. Revelation 1 says, every eye will see him. You will either meet him as judge or as savior. Savior.